because you can't reach that perfection in your mind, that human idea of, oh, I know exactly what God wants. And maybe if I'm an asshole to kids, I'll get it. (laughs) Yeah. Which like, here's the thing. Maybe if you're an asshole to kids, you will get it. Like, (laughs) just at least think about it. Because a God worth following is for sure an asshole to kids. Oh, yeah. (laughs) There's no chance. Um, Uh, Rogler's is definitely down in hell hanging out with Hemingway is my conclusion to that thought. (laughs) Bringing it back. Hi, Lillian. How are you? I'm good, Piper. How are you? I'm doing good too. I am very excited to talk about this. Um, it's as I was diving into notes, I was thinking to myself, I'm like, this may be some of my favorite chunks of writing in the entire novel. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm very excited to talk about nature and Jane Eyre. Yes. I think we need to jump right into the theme and not do any banter at the beginning because we have so much to talk about. Because I was putting my notes together and it's one of those classic. Airbuds episodes where I'm like not only excited to talk about this thing because the topic is really interesting, but specifically I was like, I need to talk to Piper about this. Yay. Um, so there's so much that we want to go through. We talked a little bit before about kind of how we want to approach it. I have some specific questions for you that I'm going to bring up at specific moments, um, but we're kind of going to go through this chronologically and talk about nature. It does live kind of throughout the story. So there's some specific chunks that we're going to be bringing up to talk about specific moments. My notes for this episode are long. And I also highlighted, um, I have seven pages of quotes from the book that I copy pasted into my notes. We're not going to read all of those, but I might (laughs) post them on our socials so you guys can see them. But there's a, there's a lot to go through when it comes to the nature in Jane Eyre. It's Um, critical. And I do have a couple of passages that I would like to read. Um, So if that's not too obnoxious, uh, I might just dive in. (laughs) I think you should should read those. If you have one that you want to start us off with, I actually did want to talk a little bit about the opening passage. Mm -hmm, Me too. Um, Is that the passage you have that you'd like to read? So no, I'm not going to read that one, but I'm happy to talk about it. Although I think it's very important for our listeners to know, um, I am so craving like cozy aesthetic vibes right now. So while I was taking my notes, I was listening to instrumental music and uh, I had a candle going. And before I came in here, I made myself a little mocktail that has muddled blackberries and um, uh, iced tea and little cherries in it. So I'm like, Ooh, I'm ready to get cozy and talk about stuff. I have never been more upset that we don't record in person than what, than my envy watching you enjoy that little mocktail. I will make you one the next time you're here. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds perfect. Um, I do I I do actually think it would be really fun to start with the opening passage. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could have me read it, which always go bad, or I could drop <laughs> it in the chat if you want to read it. Well, lucky for us, I have my book right here. Oh, perfect. In anticipation. Um, I think it's literally just, just the first paragraph, but I think that there's nothing that kind of sets the mood like there was no possibility to, of taking a walk that day. Oh, absolutely. And actually, I'm going to read um, the first two paragraphs because my first question that I had for you, Lillian, was to say, 
Take a guess at how early in the novel Twilight is mentioned. It's- I cannot believe. Okay, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna read the you're gonna read the passage, but I do feel like I something that Piper pointed out. I think it was one of our book episodes mm-hmm. was the idea that Twilight is when uh, Edward and Jane or or Jane and Mr. Rochester, as we've only ever referred to them, are like see each other best and. So many of my notes are around that idea. And it is also one of our most popular videos on YouTube. So you sniffed it out, Piper. You you found a a theme that I want to talk about quite a bit. Um, And it is mentioned, it's highlighted in my notes, uh, mentioned second paragraph of the book. Awesome. I'm so excited. So the famous opening to this novel, there was no possibility of taking a walk that day. We had been wandering indeed in the leafless shrubbery an hour in the morning, but since dinner, Mrs. Reed, when there was no company, dined early, the cold winter wind had brought with it clouds so somber and a rain so penetrating that further outdoor exercise was now out of the question. I was glad of it. I never liked long walks, especially on chilly afternoons. Dreadful to me was the coming home in the raw twilight, with nipped fingers and toes, and a heart saddened by the chidings of Bessie, the nurse, and humbled by the consciousness of my physical inferiority to Eliza, John, and Georgiana Reed. That's such a good opening to a book. Like, I can't, (laughs) I can't express how, like, doing, we used to do in high school passage analyses on like, we'd pull out a passage from a book and you'd write a whole essay just about that passage. I could do that about every passage that I've put in here today, but this one in particular is like, this is worthy of a graduate thesis. Like the (laughs) the way that she brings us immediately into Jane's headspace, gives us the context of who this girl is. Mm -hmm while saying something interesting and establishing themes and metaphors that she uses throughout the rest of the book Mm -hmm. is insane to me. I know. It's so good. The thing that I found interesting, apart from being surprised of seeing the word Twilight mentioned so early Mm -hmm. on, is how I think something that I'm going to talk about a lot is for different stages of Jane's life, um, nature kind of changes whether it is like accommodating or fearful. And I think it has to do with also her state of mind when she's perceiving these things. So at this time, when she's trapped in this home with these people who are cruel to her, she doesn't like Twilight because it means coming home to a place that she doesn't feel where she belongs or is treated kindly. So at this point, Twilight is described as something dreadful. And then later on, we see it again in like the meeting of Rochester and it becomes this thing that inspires delight in her because at that Mm -hmm. time in her life, she's content and happy. And I think it's interesting to keep that in mind as we go through our analysis of these scenes. Yeah. I think uh, everything you said, I completely agree with. I think the, the two things that I noted and a theme that I noted from the way she talks about nature in her childhood altogether. And to be fair, listeners, um, I, these are mostly my thoughts, um, but I did I did Google things because I want to say smart things. And if there's things we're obviously missing, um, <laughs> I, I did look some of these things up. So something that was pointed out that I think is more is is critical to understand is that especially in Jane's childhood, the way she describes weather is very reflective of her mood. Mm-hmm. Um, so like the the like sad days, the the leafless shrubbery, 
the cold walks, like she does not like a walk at the beginning of the story. And yet later in the book, the walk to uh, Helene is seen as this adventure and this excitement. And she's so enthusiastic about this long walk. It's the context of the walk. That's the problem. Yes. And it is so interesting how childlike that is, like how well Charlotte Bronte writes as a child Mm -hmm. is so well done the same way throughout her childhood. She's very influenced by the weather, how uh, desperately sad she is at Lowood. And then as spring comes, the way that that changes. And I know we're going to talk about that a lot more, but I do specifically want to talk about that line of um, dreadful to me was the coming home in the raw twilight Raw Twilight is so interesting to me, especially when you contextualize it with your insight of mm-hmm. that it are Rochester and Jane uh, crepuscular, is that right? <laughs> yep, that's the right word. Um, creatures <laughs> where they see best at dawn and dusk. Yes. So that idea that Jane sees truth and she sees the most true things at that moment of twilight, mm-hmm. the rawness, as she describes in this immediate first passage of twilight and how devastating the truth of her situation would be for a child in yeah. this instance, that it would make you hate twilight. If twilight is when you see that truth, mm-hmm. it would make you hate that light. Especially because it's in that same passage where she compares herself physically to her cousins. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's almost kind of like you could look at it in a literal sense to say, well, you know, in this time of light where I, everything is, you can see it clearly, you can better notice how her cousins are probably better dressed and better fed, mm-hmm. um, healthier and happier. Whereas she looks at herself and she's, I imagine, not wearing as nice of clothes. And they often describe little Jane as sickly and things like that. And so to be like, there's no pretending I'm an equal part of this family when you can see so plainly how separated and unequal we are. Um, and I also think too, a big thing is that like, okay, we're returning to this, like her first prison, one of many prisons mm-hmm. for chain is Gateshead and you have to go home at twilight after your walks. Yeah. And I think it's interesting as we talk about that first prison re- line that you were mentioning, like it's interesting as we talk about Jane in childhood and her relationship with neighbor- nature in childhood there is a direct reflection of her mood in the um, the weather particularly mm-hmm. um, and in nature. And I think her transition from Gateshead to Lowood, that being sent, set in the winter is so intentional. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's because she's transitioning from one nature to another, but I, or one prison to another. Um, but I wonder something that I was thinking about a lot with this, and I think it's something we're going to talk about quite a bit in this is the literal meaning of things and mm-hmm. the metaphor of it. Yeah. So, um, specifically with that idea of how Jane writes about the weather, mm-hmm. um, as a child being that reflection, assuming that this is putting on that lens of, this is an autobiography. So this is meant to be an adult Jane, 10 years after being married to Mr. Rochester, writing her life story. So looking back on childhood, don't those lovely summer days have a particular romantic glow over them Mm -hmm. and the harsh winter moments? Like 
whether or not you like the winter and you think of the winter as a happy time is dependent on how enjoyable that time. Like it's, it feels very childlike that Jane's it's the wit, not, and not just childlike, like a child would write that, but like Mm -hmm. the way a child would think about that looking back in memories Mm -hmm. would be very reflective of their mood. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. Another thing that I want to touch on, because I feel like we should go into talking about the nature she experiences at Lowood, because that is mm-hmm. such a significant change. But before we leave Gateshead, um, the things that kind of also stood out to me, I read further into kind of how Jane copes with this rainy day is by seeking out her favorite book and curling up in that little window seat. And so what I've written down about this is that so the nature that's currently available to her at Gateshead is this leafless shrubbery in like this cold, empty winter mm-hmm. garden. Um, so Jane seeks an escape in the nature that she finds described to her in books and in these illustrations. Um, and the descriptions, that was like one of the first things that I really talked about when we dived into reading the chapters and talking about them, because that that imagery really spoke to my like artistic and imaginative side. And the descriptions of how like she both as if we're looking at adult Jane remembering back on how she herself as a child thought of these things, they're the descriptions are so natural and wild and they're these faraway places. Um, and it introduces to us both Jane's imagination, her sense of wonder, but also very much so her loneliness. Mm. Um, all the scenes described are of like ships in the middle of a turbulent sea or a lonely like bird alone on a perch. Um, there's even like a horned creature overlooking some uh, like gallows for like a hanging that's about to happen. But interesting, interestingly, in my opinion, Jane's like mood as it like is reflective of like how she perceives the weather we also see her right now in this very lonely vulnerable gloomy space she's very drawn to these dark images but interestingly the one that she skips over that's too scary is of this like burglar on the road which Mm. i think it's the implied violence of that that she doesn't want to be a part of um because i think she experiences that in her own life um so deep reads into (laughs) just simple passages but it's what I love about this that yeah. you can get so much from these little details. Well, and I think that's that's what approaching these themed episodes in general, but specifically, I think I've seen it more with this nature one than any of the other ones we've done, mm-hmm. is how deep you can go with that and how many layers there are to this book. Um, but I think specifically in relation to that, the way she perceives adventure there. And the way she talks about her own adventures later is so interesting to me Mm -hmm. because those stories do really lean on like setting this scene and creating this magical moment. And those are, um, they're, they're much more dramatized fiction, but even when Jane in her own head is walking down the streets alone, when she's on her way to Helene or when she's, um, left Rochester and is walking through the moors, the way she describes her current location is much more similar to the way she talks about it in the the adventures that she reads than it is how she talks about her own nature experience with nature in her childhood. So it's almost like in coming to this adulthood, she sees her own life as this adventure in the Mm -hmm. way that she does in books in childhood. Absolutely. 
which is so interesting. It's so good. Um, <laughs> and as we know, Jane is an artist herself and is this creative person. So of course she has to put that into her life story. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, of course she does. So um, in chapter nine, we get uh, the kind of descriptions of spring coming to Lowood and um, hope comes with it. And one thing that I love, there's a description where she talks about um, some of the flower beds that are getting like life is coming, growing up mm -hmm. um, through the previously just kind of dead underbrush. And hope is a word that she spells with a capital H, which I just think is really interesting, just like picking yeah. up those little details. So this is a lot of what I really want to talk about. And I'm going to read a passage or two from this section. Mm -hmm. But I think one of my favorite things about this section, apart from it being one of the most in-depth descriptions of nature that we get in the novel, is it I think is the best example of how we see both Charlotte's understanding and Jane's understanding of the dichotomy of nature, that it is mm -hmm. both this very harsh and potentially punishing thing, but then also this like life bringer that mm. permits freedom. Um, and so like the early descriptions before she goes into talking about like the bounty and beauty of nature as an escape from Lowood is first describing the contrast of that, of the harshness of the winter that came before. Mm -hmm. And Charlotte's descriptions here, they're poetic, they're powerful. Even the harshness of a barren winter landscape is described with respect and understanding. Um, is another thing that like really came through to me that you can really tell that Charlotte spent a lot of time like observing the world around her. And that comes mm -hmm. from like real life experience of living in a place like this. Um, and then the perfect contrast of once that winter cut or once the winter passes and the spring is here now nature is this escape for the children mm -hmm. who aren't sick yet they can leave their plague house and go out into the wilderness and there's less adults to supervise them or monitor them because some people have gone away to avoid the illness um, others are busy tending to the children who are sick and so it is this unbounded freedom and there's mm -hmm. a line where she says we did what we liked went where we liked um, when the kids get to have this this time in the woods. And I think that lays the seeds for uh, <laughs> Jane's desire to journey yeah. on. <laughs> A journey on. I think if there's one theme of Jane, <laughs> that is a reference to um, the not great musical uh, for anybody. <laughs> the 2013 listen to our episode on it. You'll hear our truest thoughts about journey on. Um <laughs> But yeah, I think that's such an excellent point. I also had that passage highlighted. And I think that the next line is so interesting, which is just the idea that we lived better too. Mm -hmm. And I think that's such a contrast that you're bringing up of like the girls who were healthy and were able to go outside. And we talked about this a lot in this section in our book episode they had more resources, they had more free time, they had more just freedom in general mm -hmm. um, and safety, even yeah. though these other people were dying, these other children were dying. Um, and it's so, I think that contrast in the way that she sets that in nature, that nature has these contrasts, that life and death live next to each other and often because of each other. Like mm -hmm. there's so many examples of like a tree falls over and that tree dies but then so much life comes out of what that tree leaves behind. And I think there's, there's a similarity here in that she's taking this parallel of the way the natural world works and then the way 
that these tragedies in life, like Helen's death creates so much in Jane's life and Mm -hmm. it's so much sorrow and so much pain, but it's also that perfect person that Helen was as a child stays frozen in amber like that for her. And those ideals become godlike to her. And it's so interesting to think about that in that contrast of nature, like you were referencing. Absolutely. And even like earlier in the passage, it's almost as if um, Charlotte is kind of somewhat implying that in addition to just like the overall neglect that these children mm. endured, um, the location of Lowood in this uh, dell, it's like in this mm-hmm. basin area. And she's like, this was a place where like the cold mist would settle and with it came this plague. So it's yeah. like, it's definitely mostly Brocklehurst's fault um, because he sucks and he like makes children walk in circles outside in the rain. Um, but also it's like nature partially like put this on us, but then also yeah. it offered refuge. Yeah. Um, and I think the the refuge idea is one that comes up again when she, there's, I think it's interesting how nature is this safe, hopeful place for her in this time that could be really traumatizing and tragic and in so many ways is mm-hmm. in the same way that nature becomes a refuge for her when she has another really traumatic experience after she finds about, out about the truth with Rochester um, and comes back to that moment. It that's these are the two sections of the book that are most heavily set in nature. Yeah. Um, nature is kind of woven throughout this, and r- many natural themes are ro- woven throughout the book. But those are the times where Jane spends the most time in nature, mm-hmm. and it's interesting that they're both. Again, I wouldn't have thought about it if we hadn't talked about the book in the way that we do, Mm -hmm. Um, but they're both so specifically, there's a tragedy and the refuge is nature and the place she feels safe and happy is nature. And from a a metaphor standpoint, great job, Charlotte. From a psychological (laughs) standpoint though, too, I wonder if the safety of nature in her childhood and that being that refuge during a dark time is the reason as an adult we see passages that we will we'll talk about where she says things like, I felt like nature was welcoming me back to her um, yeah. embrace. I 100% think that is the case. It is. I mean, you were talking earlier about kind of like the nostalgia of looking back on these times. Mm-hmm. And so I think that is absolutely what Jane is drawing from for strength to say, when was the last time I was faced with such hardships? Oh, yeah, it was when like this horrible disease was killing all of my friends. But at that time, I was able to go into nature and everything was fine again. So maybe I can find similar like reassurance and rest in a similarly yeah. wild environment. Um, one thing I say, I want to say before I read a couple of passages from this chapter is I think, honestly, I just had a bit of an epiphany when I was kind of talking through that of the fact yeah. that like the mist maybe brought the cold, but Brocklehurst also in his like negligence was also mm-hmm. a contributing factor. I think what is so beautiful that's kind of put... Um, posed there is this idea that nature can be harsh, but nature is, it's ambivalent. It has no, it's not doing anything intentionally or unintentionally to like hurt anybody. Human beings do have free will and like the purpose to do good. And when someone like Brocklehurst doesn't, that hurts even more. Cause like nature is going to do what it does and be cold and like possibly make you like catch cold and get ill. But if the place, the human beings, the adults who are meant to care for you, don't give you the shelter and the clothes and the warmth and the food and the sustenance to beat off that element, then they are to blame. 
Well, and I think I, you let me know if this makes more sense to talk about now or after you've read your passages, but I do have two um, areas that I want to talk to related to Brocklehurst and the way he views nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one about Miss Temple and kind of how that contrast is um, with nature. So I don't know if you want to read your passages first while we're still talking about this springtime or if we want to talk about those characters quickly. Um, I'll read these two passages real quick okay? because these are more just about just relishing in the beauty of this nature writing because oh, okay. it deserves appreciation. Um, so while disease had thus become an inhabitant of Lowood and death its frequent visitor, while there was gloom and fear within its walls, while its rooms and passages steamed with hospital smells, the drug and the pastille striving vainly to overcome the effluva of mortality, that bright May shone unclouded over the bold hills and beautiful woodland out of doors. Its garden, too, had opened. Glowed with flowers, hollylocks had sprung up as tall as trees. The borders of the little beds were gay with pink thrift and crimson double daisies. The sweet briars gave out, morning and evening, their scent of spice and apples. And these fragrant, fragrant treasures were all useless for most of the inmates of Lowood, except to furnish now and then a handful of herbs and a blossom to put on a coffin." It's just like that amazing like back and forth of being like we start the passage talking about like the death and the illness. We briefly give us like a respite of like wallowing in the beauty of nature. But then we come back to the cold reality of saying, but who could appreciate it for many of them were dead. (laughs) It's just like, oh, my God, it's so good. It's so good. And it's so it's that contrast of life and death. Like that's so interesting. And and the fact that she lives in that metaphor in so many specific ways and how Jane's life is notably better while all these people are dying yeah. and what that means to a child versus what that means to the adults that are there mm-hmm. um, is so interesting to me. Seriously. One last little passage, real yeah, speedy no, quick. Do. This is when Jane is off in the woods with her new friend, um, Mary Ann Wilson. And just this little passage here, the visuals of it makes me so happy. My favorite seat was a smooth and broad stone, rising white and dry from the very middle of the beck, and only to be got at by wading through the water, a feat I accomplished barefoot. And it's just like, there's, I don't know, this image of little Jane, like, walking barefoot through streams and perching mm-hmm. to eat her little bread on a river stone. It's like briefly for this one moment, she was like this wild little creature uninhabited by societal rules. It's like, yeah. she was that fairy that Rochester like thinks of her as. And I love that she had at that moment, if not briefly in her life. Yeah. And I think it's interesting putting on the lens that we have of like, the adaptations. I feel like some of the adaptations do a good job of bringing in the idea that the harshness of the weather contributed to the harshness of Lowood and they can get, get that part. But I don't know of any of them that have really captured that. I want to say dichotomy, but that's not right. Um, But the contrast Mm -hmm. of the death and the life of spring that, and the way that that um, is brought up here. Um, And I would love to see someone try. Lillian, talk to us about Broccoli and his stupid views and Miss Temple's lovely views. So there's two there's two big themes that um, I notice that are kind of metaphors that hold throughout the book um, related to nature that I think are are brought up again 
so much sooner than I thought they were. So starting with uh, Brocklehurst, there's a dual meaning to the word nature, which um, I ha- I honestly hadn't even really thought about how that fits in this novel, but there's there's too many references of it in this for it not to have been intentional by Charlotte. Mm-hmm. But um, we don't often talk now about what is in your nature, like as a person, what is something that is like natural for you to do? Because mm-hmm. so often it's been used um, to uh, really put people in boxes and talk about, well, you can't do that. That's against nature. Um, and there's all sorts of other things like that. But I think it's interesting to see um, the way that that dual meaning of what is inherent for you as a person, what is inherent for um, a particular group of people versus the idea of like the natural world and what we think of outside of our homes and that sort of things. And Brocklehurst in particular, um, we never see him in nature. And the it would line, kill him. <laughs> it would kill if he if he stepped on a single leaf of grass barefoot, he would perish immediately. Yes. <laughs> um, but he specifically talks about when when they're talking about the um, curly hair, which that wasn't Helen, right? That was some other girl, or was it Helen? No, I think it was another girl. I think many so, adaptations give it to Helen or give it to Jane. Yeah, yeah. That's why I can't can't remember. I think it's just some girl um, mm-hmm. who has curly hair. And Miss Temple says, well, it curls naturally. And Brocklehurst responds, we do not conform to nature. And I think it's a really interesting introduction to a couple of themes that I see that I'm going to reference a few different times as we talk about this. Um, the first one being that idea that he is saying we as people need to distance ourselves from nature in his mind to get closer to God. Mm -hmm. So he is saying that this girl shouldn't have curly hair, even if it's what her hair naturally does, um, because it's not what God defined um, and what God thinks is right, (laughs) which there's so many problems with that. (laughs) I know, I can't even start. (laughs) But it introduces a specific idea of, Jane and Rochester and Helen and Miss Temple are just a few of the characters who want people to align with not only nature, but their own nature. They have yeah. the, the idea of a sense of self, the idea that that self could be different from other people is something that is seen a lot in the, some of those favorite characters of ours. Um, Another layer to this that I'm going to talk a lot more about when we talk about my favorite character, Sinjin, but (laughs) um, I do want to reference it here because Broccoli has such a similar um, stance on this to what I see Sinjin stance on later, which is there is a lot of reflection in the metaphors throughout this book. Mm-hmm. where nature is aligned with the idea of God mm-hmm. and where nature is aligned with the idea of self. Yeah. And I think that ties really strongly into an overall theme that we've talked about before, which is Jane and I think Charlotte um, really believes that your relationship with God is tied to your relationship with self. Yeah. So this parallel of nature God and self is something that I see a lot where Mm -hmm. she is doing a little bit of that X equals Y, Y equals Z. So Z equals X. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So I think there's a lot of metaphor that we see a lot in there. And Brocklehurst's detachment from nature and belief that nature has nothing to do with God mm-hmm. and not wanting um, these children to be tied to nature is his ex- is his is an example of where I think Charlotte is saying men like Brocklehurst are actually not connected to God right. because they're not connected to nature. No, I completely agree. These are beautiful insights, Lillian. I want you to write a full thesis on this. I um, can't. I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> um, if I may, just because this is like so perfectly lined up with exactly what yes. you're saying. Here's a passage from the book that confirms that you are correct. Thank you. You're welcome. <clears throat> this is a very God-heavy passage. Here we go. <laughs> All right. Worn out with this torture of thought, I rose to my knees. Night was come. This is when she's in the moors at the end of the story. Mm. And her planets were risen, a safe, still night, too serene for the companionship of fear. We know that God is everywhere, but certainly we feel his presence most when his worlds and his works are on the grandest scale spread before us. And it is in the unclouded night sky where his worlds wheel their silent course that we read clearest. His infinitude, his omnipotence, his omnipresence. I had risen to my knees to pray for Mr. Rochester. Looking up, I, with tear-dimmed eyes, saw the mighty Milky Way, remembering what it was, what countless systems were swept space like a soft trace of light. I felt the might and strength of God. Sure was I of his efficiency to save what he had made. Convinced, I grew that neither earth should perish nor one of his souls it treasured. I turned my prayer to thanksgiving. The source of life was also the savior of spirits. Mr. Rochester was safe. He was God's, and by God he would be guarded. I again nestled to the breast of the hill, and ere long in slept forgot sorrow. That's such a good passage. <laughs> no, right? And I think that that's why, that's where I see, it's interesting because, um, and I do want to come back to this because I do, I do think if we talk about this chronologically and kind of build these bridges between mm-hmm. the end and the beginning, that's going to be the most helpful to our listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is interesting that most of the points that I see that led me to that conclusion of God and self and nature are sort of one most of the points that I see are after this passage when she so clearly establishes a connection between God and nature um, and that she's establishing that theme so early in the book. And interesting how like it's really only on a reread that you can see that that's the point she's making about Brocklehurst Mm -hmm. because Jane herself doesn't have that connection. It's the same way that like children, I, I don't know if, Jane truly understood how evil Brocklehurst was when she was a child. It's only on reflecting on those people that you realize that. How many people in childhood did you trust and believe that you now know, tragically as an adult, were not doing things that were to your best interest? They had beliefs that do not align with your beliefs and values. Um, But you were told that they were an authority figure, and so you trusted them. And I think looking back on Brocklehurst and seeing his like how much he despises nature is where Jane is able to really drive home the point of people who are disconnected from nature and feel that nature is wrong Mm -hmm. and believe that God exists outside of that and is, is about taming that and um, cutting off the curls on this Mm -hmm. girl, because that's not what God wants when she is explicitly saying that is what God wants. That is what is in this girl's nature. 
I think this leads well into, I mean, there's like that, that phrase that I've always hated, um, where people refer to themselves proudly as like, oh, I'm a God fearing man. And it's like, God is not to be feared. Mm -hmm. God is to be loved because he, she, it, whatever loves you. Um, but I think I see in Brocklehurst and in Sinjin, their compulsion to want to Mm. try and like tame nature, which is an impossible feat, stems from their fear and inability to understand its power. If you can't move with the river, you have to try and fight it, but that's not conducive. You won't have a happy life. You'll struggle the whole time because you can't reach that perfection in your mind, that human idea of, oh, I know exactly what God wants. And maybe if I'm an asshole to kids, I'll get it. (laughs) Yeah. Which like, here's the thing. Maybe if you're an asshole to kids, you will get it. Like (laughs) just at least think about it. Because a God worth following is for sure an asshole to kids. Oh yeah. (laughs) There's no chance. Um, Uh, Brocklehurst is definitely down in hell hanging out with Hemingway. Is my conclusion to that thought? <laughs> Bring it back. I love references that you have to listen to every single episode of our podcast to understand why that's super funny. Yay! <laughs> um, related. Uh, so back to the childhood because I I think we're gonna come back to Sinjin. I have quite a few points on him that I want to come back to at the end, but I it, some of those are really contextualized by the way Rochester interacts with nature. So mm-hmm. I want to talk about that first. But before we leave the childhood uh, behind completely, um, I do have another uh, note here on another piece that is introduced, again, much earlier than I would have thought. And this is one that I would not have noticed had it not been pointed out to me by the internet. So thank you, internet. (laughs) Um, But specifically, another metaphor is the moon is used a lot in Jane Eyre as a signifier of change. Hmm. So right before certain particular moments that are really critical, uh, the moon is mentioned. And my favorite one, I'm actually going to make Piper read this passage um, (laughs) from the childhood, is an introduction to not just Miss Temple as a character, but specifically the way that um, Miss Temple engages with um, Helen and Jane. So that idea, this, this contextualizing this passage, it happens right before, um, they go have that meal in her office, um, right after Jane's been called a liar. Um, and Helen has been comforting her. And as Helen comforts her, um, we lead into this passage where clouds are swept away. Mm. Some heavy clouds swept from the sky by a rising wind had left the moon bare and her light, streaming in through a window near, shone full both on us and the approaching figure, which we at once recognized as Miss Temple. And I think that idea of these clouds, if you think about that as the metaphor for Jane's life, Mm -hmm. these clouds are parting. Helen has come in and helped part these clouds for her, showing her this kindness, talking about her idea of you, you need to love you and God loves you. And it's what this random man thinks is sort of irrelevant. Um, and to have that be swept away and the, the, the glowing figure that leads her shining into the light is Miss Temple. Um, so Helen as that wind and Miss Temple as the figure that will guide her forward is so incredible. I love it. Can you imagine? I'm just, this is such a silly thought, but like, imagine if this 
if Jane was real and she actually wrote this autobiography and sends a copy to Miss <laughs> Temple and you get to read this and you're like, oh my God, I meant that much to you guys. And it's like, yes, <laughs> you saved but, us. But that's the thing to think about is there are probably teachers and women in her life that were that Miss Temple for her. And Charlotte was able to go to them and say, you are this light to me. And that is lovely to think about still. That's so sweet. Everyone write a letter to your favorite elementary school teacher. I Let know. them know how much you appreciate them. It's hard to teach kids. Yeah, yeah, kids are the worst. They're so <laughs> snot covered, and you just kind of want to yell at them to not be like nature. Um, <laughs> and cut off all their hair just for fun. <laughs> um, but that's the notes I have on childhood. Same. I feel like next sections, because you said you had a lot of Rochester, aka Jane and Rochester scenes that are yes. nature heavy. So lead us into that part of Jane's life. Well, is that you? Did you have chapter 11 or did you? No, I had chapter 12. Okay. My, I have some from chapter 11, just the way that she talks about um, things leading into Lowood and her first um, interactions with, not Lowood, leaving Lowood um, and her first interactions with Thornfield. Um, there's a lot of descriptions of nature there and the way that um, the scenery changes on that drive that she takes um, is very much a movement out of childhood where the weather is so the the way that she describes the weather in childhood again is she was sad so it was raining mm -hmm. she this hope was coming so the clouds parted like it's very much it's hard to tell how much of it literally happened versus how much of it was her feelings being reflected in how she remembers the weather yeah. um but as she moves into adulthood the descriptions become more that like the the there's moments where frost is described with this really positive tone and this really mm -hmm. magical tone. And um, it's because it rather than her memory being good weather was when I happened when I was in a good mood and bad weather happened when I was in a bad mood. It's I felt about that weather positively right. or negatively, depending on how I was feeling about the world. Um, and there's a lot of hope descriptors um, yeah. as she moves from Lowood to Thornfield. Mm hmm. It is um, the kind of clarity that comes with adulthood, um, as adult as a 18-year-old can be. Uh, and um, I think, too, that idea of, like, you know, when you're little, it's more inclined to be like, oh, it's raining. Everyone hates me. Nothing goes my way. But now it's more kind of that understanding of, no, nature is unbiased. It happens the way it happens, and you can find joy in that, or you can f take sadness from that, and that's okay. Yeah. Um, I have a couple of passages following up to that, um, that are about chapter 12 and waiting specifically like waiting for Rochester. The first thing I have is really about the light of that moment and meeting Rochester on the road and a few different things around the light, knowing that that twilight comment that you made is like, uh, such a big part of the way that I was reading for this. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if you have things prior to that or if I should jump right into that. Jump right in, babe. Okay. Um, so when she is first going to Haylane, she um, leaves Thornfield and waits as, as she kind of sits and watches as the sun begins to set. And once it drops below the trees, and we really are at that twilight moment, um, and she starts to see that moon rise. Um, that 
knowing what we know about the metaphor of twilight being when you see things clearly Mm -hmm. and the moon being a metaphor for (laughs) this change coming. Charlotte may as well have said, by the way, the love interest is on his way. Like she's like, twilight is romantic. It's when you see things clearly moon means change. Um, but, and, and so she's having this moment of, she waited for the moon to rise. Mm -hmm. She waited for that sun to go down. And now she's walking down this road and how auspicious something is coming. Ooh, yes. It's, um, you know, it's almost like, cause before this, we get kind of the early descriptors of Jane starting to feel restless. And mm-hmm. so you could say the waiting and um, watching the sunset and waiting for the moon to rise is kind of another kind of mini moment of Jane, just taking a moment to kind of sit in nature and see what it will bring. Um, whether that will be like, you know, will it reveal something interesting to her um, that she's like looking for with this like you know, looking for something more, maybe why am I restless? Should I mm-hmm. be happy to be here? Is that enough? Um, and then low, it's like, oh, it's not enough, babe. We got something coming for you. Well, <laughs> here you go. <laughs> I don't know what passages you have from that chapter, but one, the line that like, all of this feels like it's leading up to for me is this moment um, after uh, the the dramatic crash has happened. And she says something of the daylight still lingered and the moon was waxing bright. I could see him plainly. Ooh, it's so good. It's so good. <laughs> Another thing that I want the next adaptation of this movie on screen to do is make this movie more colorful. Like, yes, there's plenty of like dark, dreary English drawing rooms and bleak moors, but there's also so many moments that should be incredibly vibrant. Mm-hmm. Like, it struck me when I was rereading this passage of her waiting um, that like she describes the burning sunset. And I'm like, we've never yeah. seen color like that in Jane Eyre. I, I will say because I've been working on some YouTube videos um, and I specifically this scene, I have watched in all of our adaptations a lot recently because I'm editing that book episode mm-hmm. um, or just finished. I can't remember which one it was, um, <laughs> but it's uh, the, the I and I hate to give any credit to someone who hated Rochester so much, but the uh Kieran Hines one where he is in the 97, mm-hmm. um, that is a very because it, it's trying to balance that like fogginess with the colorful. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a very colorful kind of there's still a bit of sunlight. Um, the 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 fog has sort of this glow and it's very, very twilight, it's very um lovely in that way nice but we don't have like a super bright vivid sunset right before that which maybe that's what you were missing in my memory too the william hurt version had a lot of like more kind of colorful glowy Mm -hmm. uh like late 90s early 2000s kind of color vibes which i really enjoyed yeah Um, and the 71 she does watch the sunset but i think the the film cameras they were using at the time didn't capture it as perfectly as we wish they could and they certainly could now people definitely (laughs) listening to the podcast working on an adaptation of jane Eyre. yeah come on guys do it we could direct for you it's easy we'll help you we're here to help (laughs) all we want is a cut 
Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say all we want is some uh, top leading actors, uh, <laughs> several hundred million dollar budget, uh, studio, free airplane tickets to get out to all of our locations because we're not filming in sets. These are all going to be legit. It's we easy, guys. Need, we also need enough money uh, in advance that we can quit our jobs. So. Yeah. Call us Hollywood, I guess. <laughs> um, so my next notes, I was planning on letting you guide kind of the middle section of the book because I don't have things written down again until the very end when she's seeking refuge in the moors. Perfect. So if there's Which in between can, stuff. There's a lot more in between stuff we can talk about. I just didn't want to rush past if you had passages from chapter 12 you wanted to talk about. Um, no, just simply my note was is that now Twilight is described as something delightful because Jane is content and happy. Where before it so was happy. dreadful. Yeah. Um, well, and I think it's interesting. This leads really well into another point that I had from her time with Rochester, which is um, that uh, Rochester is often the sky, mm -hmm. which that is a metaphor that Lillian might be pushing a little bit because it's not <laughs> always that Rochester's the sky. But the fact that she talks about the sky so much before him showing up, and then there's several moments where um, Rochester describes himself as the sky. Mm -hmm. Um, so in chapter 15, when they are out walking around, um, kind of talking about Celine. And again, that is a moment where, um, when it is, uh, so I, I'll talk a little bit more about the twilight and the lighting and how that comes, plays into that particular moment. Um, but, Rochester says to Jane, I like this day. I like that sky of steel. I like the sternness and stillness of the world under this frost. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so interesting that Rochester is looking at this gray, steely sky. Um, and rather than thinking, what a sad day, he's going, I like that it's steely. I like that, um, there's a sternness to it. And he's talking about himself there, but he's also talking about how much he likes nature being what nature is, which puts mm -hmm. him at such a contrast to a Brocklehurst and, and eventually a Sinjin. Mm -hmm. um, but as the sun begins to set and as twilight arrives, um, he says uh, that it is starting to get dark and he goes and leaves and he tells them not to stay too much longer. But Jane remains out there with Pilot and with Adele for a little bit because Rochester is afraid of the truth. Mm -hmm. And in the bright light, he can share more truths with Jane, but he will continue to lie to her. Yes. But at twilight, she will see him. And so he has to leave so that she won't see the truth. Ooh, Lillian, good job. <laughs> um, um, I also think an element too of liking the, the frost and the cold is added to the fact that Jane is there with him at that time. Mm -hmm. so that's another thing that he likes that he can't say that he and likes. He can't be like, I like you, my employee who's 18. No, he's like, uh -huh. no, I like the sky and the frost and the cold he's, and being like, here I with like you. this day, but it's definitely the sky right yeah. now. It's yeah, that's for sure that I think it's the weather. And then he looks at the weather and he goes, the weather is bad. The weather is great. The weather is beautiful, As actually. As we think about it, this is actually gorgeous weather. Um, Most people would look at this weather and be like, oh, it's like frumpy weather. But I see how beautiful this weather is. <laughs> um, another moment where the moon is signifying change is right before there is a 
scream in the night as Mason is attacked. Um, Jane is describing, she sets the scene by saying when the moon, which was at its full and bright, um, was up in the sky, essentially. Um, she, she was sort of watching the moon and thinking to herself about how it was beautiful, but too solemn. And she started to reach up to close the curtains. And that's when the scream comes because this moon that signifies change is bright, but sad in a way she can't describe. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. So hearing all of these like metaphoric kind of visual images. I think Mm -hmm. it's easy for someone who's not looking that deep to see them at surface level and be like, wow, this is really kind of cheesy, isn't it? And it's like, only because you're not understanding the meaning of what these items and boons and tokens signify. Like, so you're basic. (laughs) We've said it before. We'll say it again. We're the first people to figure it out. Jane Eyre, good book. (laughs) Amazing. Shocker. (laughs) We we are the first ones to discover Jane Eyre, quality piece of literature. Pretty good, good actually. (laughs) So my next note goes back to that light idea. And it's the, the morning of uh mason leaving so after the attack again it's it's another moment where like rochester can hide in the darkness so when it's fully dark he can hide when it's fully light he still can lie to jane but when it's in this in between mm-hmm. in those moments of dawn and dusk when it's that those crepuscular characters mm-hmm. um rochester can't hide yeah and it is half past five in the morning when um, Mason is finally brought off. And if you don't mind reading another passage, because you're so good at it, thank you. Um, I, don't. I will drop this into the chat because I think I, what I want to talk about here is specifically, you don't have to read the whole thing if you don't want to. Um, but, uh, particularly that opening bit, um, and thinking about the context of that conversation and how honest he is, but how he switches towards the end. Um, and thinking about the way that that's set up through this light. It was by this time half past five, and the sun was on the point of rising, but I found the kitchen still dark and silent. The side passage door was fastened. I opened it, with as little noise as possible. All the yard was quiet, but the, gra- but the gates stood wide open, but there was a post-chase with horses ready harnessed and drivers seated on the box stationed outside. I approached him and said the gentlemen were coming. He nodded. Then I looked carefully round and listened. The stillness of early morning slumbered everywhere. The curtains were yet drawn over the servants' chamber's windows. Little birds were just twittering in the blossom-blanched orchard trees, whose boughs drooped like white garlands over the wall enclosed, enclosing one side of the yard. The carriage horses stamped from from time to time in their closed stables. All else was still. And so think about the fact that then Rochester comes out into that yard. They send Mason off. He starts to have this really honest conversation with Jane. But as the sun comes up, as more and more light intrudes on their moments of honesty, that is when Rochester chooses to lie to her again Mm -hmm. and say that he wants to marry Blanche. Yeah. And it's just so nuts to me how, like, you, you you have this idea of, like, they are crepuscular. Dawn and dusk is when they're honest with each other. In the night, he can hide his secrets. In the day, he actively lies to her. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to like have all these moments where I'm like, 
did I, did we really figure something out about Jacob? <laughs> we figured a thing out and it's like true the whole time. Again, this is why when Hollywood calls, we're going to be like, okay, so like your lighting department is going to have such a blast with working on this <laughs> film. Cause that's going to be like half of the story is that mm-hmm. and the cinematography of capturing that light. Cause that is crucial to understanding how these two people interact with one another. Um, so the, I, I promise this is just, she's just going to be a long boy guys. I'm sorry about it. It's just going to be a long episode. Um, but I do the next place where I see nature come in quite a bit is in the proposal. Of course. Um, so it is a gorgeous, hot, beautiful day, um, with birds flying around and just in general, it reminds, it's a reminder of like this, of Italy days in Italy is what the specific descriptor is. Um, and there's so much description leading up to when Rochester is, uh, starts the proposal that really establishes this moment of, um, twilight and the way that Jane tries to hide from him thinking that he's so in his head, Mm -hmm. but he immediately sees her because of that clarity that they both have with each other at twilight. Um, and the way that they are, really bonding over nature and looking at this moth that then flies away as soon as she's there. And she thinks she's going to be able to sneak off. Mm -hmm. So my main note about this section in nature, focusing on that moth Mm -hmm. is I think, so I didn't take notes on this one. This is just kind of going off of what I remember from that passage. Um, I think because the moth, he kind of makes a reference to it being sort of like a tropical species. Mm. Um, and I think there's also an element to the way the garden is described on this like warm summer, like end of day, that is also kind of meant to remind Rochester of kind of the more tropical settings of his past. Mm-hmm. And I think that is very interesting that the whole time that he's trying to build up the courage or the right words to use to like propose to the woman he loves, mm-hmm. he is constantly being reminded by nature that they're like, Remember your past. Remember your wife. She's upstairs. These are the things that should make you think of Bertha. You are already taken. You are already committed. Like all of this is around him. And he's like still admiring those things. But he's also like, no, no, no. Like I want the I want this other thing. I'm going to go for that instead. And I think it's so interesting as you bring that up that Rochester is a character who really embraces nature, both personal, your personal nature, a lesson he learned the hard way and enjoys being out in the gardens of Thornfield, enjoys um, getting to experience some of these other things. And yet in trying to be with Jane, he is going against nature and it's the only time that he tries to go against nature. Yeah. Um, And it's so interesting. There's the specifically that line with the moth, thinking of that moth as a metaphor for Bertha Um, as soon as Jane walks up, the moth roams away. And the line that she says is, I was sheepishly retreating also, but Mr. Rochester followed me. And when we reached the wicket, he said, turn back. It is so lovely a night. It is a shame to sit in the house. And surely no one could wish to go to bed while the sunset is thus at meeting the moonrise. It's so dang cute. And all the metaphors that we know about Rochester having those parallels to the sky, the moon coming up and signifying change, the sun setting, and the fact that they're seeing each other clearly at twilight, all of that sets up this momentous scene where they finally express the truth 
to each mm-hmm. other about how they're feeling and what they're feeling and what they want. And yet as it gets darker, Rochester still is able to hide truths from Jane. Exactly. In addition to the proposal, there's also a moment with the moon, both right after the proposal and then the night before the wedding. Um, so two separate moments here that I want to talk about is um, the moon had not yet set when she got back. And so she could, but she could scarcely see um, her master's face is what the line specifically says. And she's within underneath that chestnut tree. So she, the moon is out signifying this change. That's the only light that she has left. So we're past twilight. There's no longer a truth there. And it's the tree, which the tree chestnut tree is a metaphor for their love and their relationship, which we see a lot more after it's struck by lightning. Mm -hmm. Um, But the way that it's that love is hiding the truth from her. Yeah. So the the change that's coming is trying to light this truth. It's trying to continue what they had at twilight where they were being honest with each other and they were learning, but their love in this tree and their relationship that these two have is hiding things from Jane and she can't see the truth on his face because of it. And my like favorite obviously is the proposal with the Timothy Dalton version. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's one thing I know we've talked about, like, you know, preference with these scenes and what we think Mm -hmm. it does well, what we don't think it does well. But I think visually that one will always stick in my mind when you're describing it this way is that like he is in the shadow and she has that thing where she's like, she's like, are you being earnest? Like when she kind of starts to like believe him and Mm -hmm. and he's like, she's like, come like, let me see your face. And like, I think Timothy Dalton does such a good job of once he steps out of that shadow and he is put into that light. I think you can almost, I don't know how intentional this was on his part. He's a great actor. So maybe it was intentional, but you can almost like see in his face, this like mix of like emotion. There's almost this level of fear, which I think is partially his fear that she'll dismiss him and go away from him. But also I think this level of fear of her, you know, asking if he's being truthful, which he knows he's not trying to like confront that and maybe suss out the truth herself. And it's like, will Mm -hmm. it be revealed on my face that I'm a liar and a cheat and like all this other stuff, but I don't know. It's great. (laughs) Yeah. I think that that is super great. And I'm going to post, this is so similarly, similar kind of moment of the moon the night before the wedding. And I genuinely do not remember. um, I pulled this from something else. I can't remember if this is part of the dream or if this is just her looking at the moon the night before the wedding. I'm guessing it's part of the dream, but um, remembering that that moon is that metaphor for change. Um, this passage really um, has a, has the has the spooks. If you're looking for a moment that's coming, that change is coming, and you, that moon is that for you, and it's lighting the way. <laughs> this is spooky, huh, Piper? As I looked up at them, the moon appeared momentarily in that part of the sky which filled their fissure. Her disc was blood red and half overcast. She seemed to thrown on me one bewildered, dreary glance and buried herself again instantly in the deep drift of cloud. The wind fell for a second round Thornfield, but far away over wood and water poured a wild, melancholy wail. It was sad to listen to. And I ran off again. So she's looking up at this moon in her, in her dreams and it's signifying blood red change. Mm-hmm. Someone's Woof. gonna die. Duh, duh. <laughs> uh, so the, the chestnut tree, I don't want to talk about too much. Cause I do think that it's one that 
there's a lot of people who have metaphors and have talked about that quite a bit. Um, but it is often talked about as that metaphor of Jane and Rochester. Mm -hmm. Um, it breaks, uh, the night after their proposal. There's almost a dark comedy element to it of, of, um, speaking of like God and nature and all that good stuff of Rochester after he like, after Jane accepts his proposal and he's like, God and man meddle not with me. And then God's like, oh yeah, bitch, smite. <laughs> it's like, it's like breaks that tree. It's but just I like, think, oh my God, it's amazing. <laughs> I think one of the things that's so, you're so right. That's so good. Um, I think one of the things that um, I find interesting that is sort of not just the destruction of that chestnut tree as a metaphor for Jane and Rochester, but also as a metaphor for the Rochesters mm -hmm. and Thornfield's existence and all that stuff and how Rochester is again, going against nature. He's going against um, what would be best for his family and all of these other things. And that's what destroys the tree. So this history that his family has the, the place that he's at um, and the fact that he calls upon God calls upon nature mm -hmm. to smite him and the tree gets blown up. <laughs> his aim was just off a little bit that day um there's also some other there's a lot with like the bird metaphor which frankly a lot of other people talk about yeah. so let's not go into it but if you want a birds full, man yeah if you, birds if you want a full show all about the bird metaphor um once again check out on air by the hot and bothered podcast they talk about mm -hmm. that extensively and it's very well done and very beautiful but there's a lot of metaphors as jane learns the truth after um, she chooses to leave. Um, one of the things, it, and this is related to, this was right before that passage you read when we were talking about uh, Brocklehurst at the beginning of this episode, but um, she describes the sky as um, pure. And I think that that's really interesting to think about with, in relation to, in relation to uh, Rochester. So it's after the stay speech, she's getting ready to leave Thornfield. She's leaving and she looks up at the sky and it's kindly stars twinkling over the chasm ridge um and sees the sky as pure and i think it's so interesting that the only time she describes the sky as pure the only time she describes rochester as pure is when she knows all of the truth most of my sections that i focused on were the early childhood but then also i think the thing that really made me think about this a lot i think and especially when we were doing the chapter analysis when we get to um, chapter 28, which is after she has run away and is now trying to survive. I think when we talked about that on that episode is kind of when we were like, we should save a lot of these thoughts for a nature centric episode because there's mm -hmm. so much to dive into here. Um, I feel like there is a line that could be easily used as kind of like the thesis or like the header of this paper that we would uh hypothetically be writing which mm -hmm. happens in this section here i touched the heath it was dry and yet warm with the heat of the summer day i looked at the sky it was pure a kindly star twinkled just above the chasm ridge the dew fell but with propitious softness no breeze whispered nature seemed to me benign and good i thought she loved me outcast as i was and i who from man could anticipate only mistrust rejection insult clung to her with filial fine fondness tonight at least i would be her guest as i was her child my mother would lodge me without money and without price and 
that's like the whole, I think, thing of being like, remember when I was little and I just had a little bit of bread and a rock to sit on and everything was fine. And now here she is again with a bit of bread sitting on a cold rock, but it's not fine. She can't live out here. She wants to, but it's, it's just not going to quite happen anymore. And I, I think so there's another section that like relates to that. Um, let's see if I can find it real quick. Okay. I think it's interesting that passage is right before the one you read about God and nature being so similar. Mm -hmm. And I think particularly tying it back to that moment in her childhood when she's talking to Helen and Helen is, is really tying God and your self exploration together. Um, that these passages that the passage you just read and the passage that, um, that you're talking about with the God passage is so particularly interesting because if you and your relationship with God, if you and your relationship with nature, um, are the most important thing, which I do think that that is what Charlotte Bronte is saying. I do think that's what Jane is discovering is this, this time that starts so clearly with nature is a time of self-discovery for Jane mm-hmm. um, and really reflecting on what she wants and what she believes and who she is. And that is not enough in and of itself to live. You mm-hmm. cannot live on just what, what you are. Um, and I think that that's, that is true, not just here, but the, I, I think that the moral ideal, and I think Charlotte believes this, is the moral ideal is you do not think about what anybody else wants. You do not think about what anybody else thinks. You do what is right regardless um, of what anybody else thinks. But you can't live like that. I think it's, again, posing that question we talked about in our Why Jane Eyre Mm -hmm. of how should you live your life? And she is asking because she thinks the best way is to connect with nature and God, but you can't do that if you don't. It on your own. Well, we're, we're part of a society. Jane mm-hmm. is part of this society, which I think this chapter is so fascinating that it is kind of Charlotte's critique of society. Because mm-hmm. this is where we see Jane, unable to sustain herself in nature at this time, tries to seek um, the same hospitality from humanity. And yet those Christian values aren't there, or if they are, it's the Brocklehurst version and they see her as this leech on society who can't contribute. So they send her away and it's, oh my gosh, all the balance of all of that. Because the other thing that is so interesting to think about is in this time, Jane finds the same inspiration and beauty in this natural place that she did when she was a child. But now she has kind of more of the realistic like Mm -hmm. mindset because as a kid, once she ate that little piece of bread and it started to get cold, she always had a place to go back to. There were always adults who had some kind of shelter waiting for her, whether or not they were kind or anything like that. But there was always a building with a bed and some additional, if not meager, food. And now she finds herself in a place where that is no longer present. And mm-hmm. so what nature does offer is still nice, but it's not enough. Mm-hmm. Um, the next passage here that relates to that very well is... So she's just woken up after having this great revelation about God and all this other stuff. What a still, hot, perfect day. What a golden desert, this spreading moor. Everywhere sunshine. I wished I could live in it and on it. I saw a lizard run over the crag. I saw a bee busy among the sweet bilberries. I would fain at the moment have become bee or lizard that I might have found fitting nutriment. Permanent shelter here. 
but I was a human being and had human beings' wants. I must not linger where there was nothing to supply them. I rose. I looked back at the bed I had left. Hopeless of the future, I wished but this, that my maker had that night thought good to require my soul of me while I slept, and that this weary frame, absolved by death from further conflict with fate, had now but to decay quietly and mingle in peace with the soil of this wilderness. Life, however, was yet in my possession. With all its requirements and pains and responsibilities, the burden must be carried, the want provided for, the suffering endured, the responsibility fulfilled. I set out. That's so good. <laughs> I know Jesus, Charlotte. My God. Um, but also like this, what stands out to me about the second half of that is something that I feel like you really touched on a lot when we were reading about chains leaving is the beautiful way that Charlotte describes what it's like to feel depressed. And here mm-hmm. even it's this like level of a like suicidal of her being like, why did I have to wake up? Why couldn't I have just died mm-hmm. and become one with nature? But now I have to like keep bearing the responsibilities of heartbreak and needing to care for myself. And I think again, too, there's like the the additional pain of having just left the man who would have given her everything and been like, I will shelter and feed you. And she's like, that was there, but I had to fucking leave. And now I'm here and I'm wanting and I hate everything, but it's also beautiful because she also admires like the beautiful day and the sunshine and everything. And it's this like perfect contrast of being like, I'm, I'm, blessed to be alive but it's also a curse because I'm so unhappy yeah I think it it reminds there's this book that I read years ago that I'm not going to remember the name of and so I apologize but it had an incredible metaphor for the decision to not kill yourself Mm -hmm. and I don't want to bum anyone out and I also want to say really explicitly if anyone on this podcast is is thinking about, has any sort of suicidal ideations, is thinking about um, ending their life, please get help. Please call someone. Um, because what I'm going to say for a moment here is going to sound like a positive thing about suicide. And as someone who has lost a few people in my life who I love very dearly to suicide, um, it is not, it is not the best option. There are so many other things that life can be. But I think Jane, um, years ago, Charlotte captured this idea that, uh, about what it is to feel that in the same way that this author 10 years ago also captured, which is they described it as you are going on this terrible journey and to get to a point where you're considering suicide, you're on this terrible journey through pain and suffering and all these other things. And people don't understand that when you decide not to kill yourself, that is not relief. Deciding to kill yourself. There's like, if you've ever heard a warning sign for suicide is when someone is suddenly really happy after not being happy for a very long time, because ending the, they are end, choosing to end the journey. They are in a point where it is pain and suffering. And when you decide to live, when you decide to not kill yourself, you're turning around and you're walking back through that pain. That's the decision that you're making. And I think that's what's being captured here is this idea of it would have been easier to become part of the dirt. If that had been God's plan, that's what Jane would have done. Mm-hmm. That instead she has to stand up. She has to walk back through that pain 
She has to figure out who she is Mm -hmm. without Rochester. She has to figure out how she fits Mm -hmm. by herself. And she has to be part of society, which she sees as moving away from God. Um, And it has the only person who has ever not rejected her, she had to reject. Yeah. Woof. Powerful. Very powerful stuff. (laughs) That what you just said of like now having to walk back through all of that hardship She's about to now go have society spit on her and like push Mm -hmm. her away again and again and again, not knowing that she's made this choice to like try. Oof, oof to, oh my gosh. Um, Do we have have any positive quotes that we can... I have a little sinjin, which is not going to be positive. (laughs) And then I have Jane returning to Rochester, which um, will be. Oh, I think my last thing that I just want to say, because I don't want to end this scene with like negative thoughts because Mm -hmm. it is, I think, a very powerful, intense, beautiful moment. Mm -hmm. Um, I love that you brought it back briefly there talking about like Jane's healing has to do with this time alone, which we've discussed about like finding herself, um, reconnecting with nature, God, all that good stuff, finding her place in society on her own as an independent. And then also this like, you know, reconnecting with womanhood with like the positive women in her life. Um, and so I do think it's important as kind of melancholy as that passage is, is to note how important it is that Jane is experiencing these things Mm -hmm. and becoming stronger because of them. Well, and, and I think that's a great point. Um, I'm always hesitant to equate suffering to the building of strength because I, I don't want, you don't have to be suffer like you don't have to have suffering to be mm-hmm. strong and also if you're suffering you don't have to just be strong mm-hmm. um it is not 1847 there are resources <laughs> to help you um but i think it ties really well into um the complexity of jane eyre and also um, if again just a final note on the idea of suicide how tragic and how upsetting and how much would i not enjoy a book that ended here mhm Jane's story has to go on. Of course. Um, well, she would never just end it there. That would be like the most no, depressing thing ever. No, I'm saying if Jane's story could have ended there if she killed herself. I see, I see. So I'm saying Jane had Jane had that journey back. Um, and I oh. think that that's the important thing here that I want to talk about. Are you there, looking for another passage? Yes, there's a passage that also affirms this is perfect, that I didn't read this one earlier, but I will now real quick. Similarly, um, that after Jane had experienced such lovely nature, she has this reflection at the beginning of the story where she says, How sad to be lying now in a sickbed and to be in danger of dying. This world is pleasant. It would be dreary to be called from it and to have to go who knows where. Remember oh what child God. you said, Jane. It's dreary to be called from it. Live in this world. Live, Jane. Live. Okay. Ah, yeah. When you're um, counseled by your younger self. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway. Um, I think that's so great. And I think, um, so uh, let's talk about Sinjin. I hate you. <laughs> I really hate you, Sinjin. I know you're not real, but you kind of are. And I hate you. <laughs> this guy sucks. So there's a couple of there's a couple of moments where um Sinjin talks about the idea of nature. One is in chapter 31. Um and again, I copy pasted this into my notes so I don't remember the context exactly, but I believe it's when they're talking about his crush. Um and he Sinjin at some points talks about the idea of nature 
as a good thing and at other points talks about it as a bad thing. And I think unlike Brocklehurst, who sees nature as something to be exclusively pushed away, Sinjin is a manipulative asshole. Mm -hmm. And so he leverages sin in that idea of nature, God, self. Sinjin sees it the same way Jane does. He sees nature, God, and self as really tied together. But he thinks of, he puts himself in the center of that. And he doesn't think nature, God, self for everyone. He thinks I am aligned with God. I am aligned with nature. And there, and therefore other people should be aligned with me. Um, so he talks about the idea of um, having to fight um, some of the workings of nature um, to not be with this person. But then the more that he talks to Jane and the more that she reali- he realizes how tied to nature she is, that is where it is so important that he says the line when he's trying to get her to marry him, God and nature intend you for a missionary's wife. Because he is leveraging her own beliefs against her. She, it's so much harder to see the manipulative nightmare that Sinjin is than Brocklehurst. Because Brocklehurst is actively out there hurting children. Mm-hmm. Sinjin is doing all the right things. According to Jane, he yeah, is living to her, her standards. Mm-hmm. But... He is manipulating her with her own beliefs. And it is so interesting that, to your point, this is a moment where Jane is finding herself and she's getting connected back with God and nature. And she has this sisterhood in with these other women that she gets to meet with his sisters. And she is finding independence in her ability to work and earn money. And then ultimately, the inheritance that she finds and the way that that ties her more closely to herself. And all of these are ways for her to connect more with God. And yet Sinjin is this example of the nightmare that society can create where she is tempted because he sounds right Mm -hmm. to believe him when he says, I know God in nature. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is only in tying back to herself and connecting more with herself that she sees what, is believed to be God and real God in nature. And in this moment um, that again, nature comes back in a classic moment. We talk about so often immediately after Jane hears Rochester's voice across the moors, she says down superstition. I commented at the specter that rose black by the sky um, at the gate. Not uh, this is not thy deception nor thy witchcraft. It is a work of nature. She was Rose and did no miracle, but her best. Yeah. So specifically saying that voice of Rochester across the moors is not witchcraft. It's not evil. It's not a deception. Mm-hmm. It's As, a miracle of nature. Yeah. As if um, Sinjin knew all the details would definitely be like, you're a witch. <laughs> like you're crazy. You're possessed by demons. I can't believe I wanted to kiss you without any feeling. <laughs> um, uh, how like absolutely cruel and awful to use someone's beliefs against them in attempt to sway them to your side. I've been, I don't normally consume like true crime, but um, I've been watching a couple of video essays and a couple of podcasts recently that talk about, 
different cult leaders mm. and everything you described about what Sinjin has done. I'm like, you, I see these patterns in those awful people. I think if Sinjin, Sinjin could start a cult so fast, I know it's like if someone told told him that was an option, he would be like, oh, absolutely, yes, I'm ready to be yeah. a cult leader. <laughs> um. So I just posted another passage that transitions us away from Nightmare Man to uh, Jane choosing to go back. So this is after she's heard the story. She's going to Ferndean. And as she as she walks towards Ferndean, this is what she sees. Ooh, I'm glad you chose this one. I remember this being a neat, spooky kind mm -hmm. of uh, scene. I found myself at once in the twilight of close-ranked trees. There was a grass-grown track descending the forest aisle between... Hoar and knotty shafts under branches, branched arches. I followed it, expecting soon to reach the dwelling, but it stretched on and on. It wound far and farther. No sign of habitation or grounds was visible. I thought I had taken a wrong direction and lost my way. The darkness of natural as well as sylvan dusk gathered over me. I looked round in search of another road. There was none. All was interwoven stem, columnar trunk, dense summer foliage no opening anywhere what does rochester do after his world falls apart he goes to the most nature dense little house he can find <laughs> mm -hmm. and um she she starts with twilight and then it gets darker and darker and then she finds rochester at the end of that um and they they have their moments of honesty and they're able to yeah. um they they're able to kind of move forward and he's um, out blindly trying to feel the rain mm -hmm. um there's the the last passage that i have i think it's just an example of how much rochester is um is connected to nature in the same way that jane is connected to nature rochester wants jane to find and be herself in a way sinjin never did in a way that brocklehurst never did in a way that only miss temple and helen did prior to this um, and I think there's, there's a very last chapter and I, I don't know if we want to start with the very last passage that I have, which is in chapter 38 and is about their time together as a married couple, or if we want to, uh, ask my final question that I have for you that occurred to me during this first. Um, let's read the passage, then we'll end with your question. Okay. There we go. Hee <laughs> hee. The last one guys. He saw nature, he saw books through me, and never did I weary of gazing for his behalf, and of putting into words the effect of the field, tree, town, river, cloud, sunbeam, of the landscape before us, of the weather round us, and impressing by sound on his ear what light could no longer stamp on his eyes. And I just want to say, if nature and God and self are connected— and Jane is Rochester's bridge back to these things. Jane is his bridge back to nature. She's his bridge back to God. And she's his bridge back to himself. Cute. Cute. They heal one another. So cute. It's so cute. <laughs> I um, love it. So the last question that I have, and I'm genuinely curious about this. So Jane obviously gets so much more connected to herself, God, and nature um, in that time she spends away from Rochester after chapter 27. Mm -hmm. She then chooses to go back to Rochester. And this is something that we've talked about before. Two questions. One, if Jane had understood all of these things about herself, had felt this connected to God and had grown this much as a person prior to finding out about Bertha, 
do we think that she would have married Rochester or at least stayed with him immediately after the wedding and forgiven him and stayed? And do we think that that's what she was doing and she would have been with him even if he was still married when she went back? I think if she was the Jane at the end of the novel, at the point when she learned that info about Bertha Mm -hmm. and everything, I think she would have been better equipped to help him handle the situation and probably maybe would have stayed. I still don't think that she would necessarily like become his mistress per se, but I don't think she would have run off. Yeah. Um, So yeah, I think it's, I, my, my thought is she would, if she, when she's going back and doesn't know if that birth is dead, I think she would have been his mistress then. I think she would have, um, she would have had her direct connection mm-hmm. with God and nature and herself and would have felt that was enough. Um, so I, I agree. I think the only difference is, is that at the end of the journey, deciding to return, she has had time to process the facts of his lies and yeah. that truth in that moment, if she's still this strong, but she's still like suddenly has the rug pulled out from under her where he's like, whoops, yeah. I'm married. I think she'd be like, well, I am a very like in tune with myself and God and nature individual. And I hold my self-respect high enough that no, I'm not going to sleep with you when you're married. Um, yeah. And I think, I think you it's lied interesting. To me. <laughs> yeah. I think it's interesting because it connects so strongly to something that I've said a lot, which is I don't believe in regrets. And I know that sounds like so insane. Um, (laughs) there's, it's not to say that there aren't things in my life that I look back on and go, Oh, I wish I'd done this differently or any, or I would do this differently if I was in that situation now. But the truth is I, I'm only the version of myself able to look back at that and feel that I would have done it differently because of what happened Mm -hmm. and because of what I learned from that experience. So I don't know the version. I don't know who I would be without that. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the same thing for Jane is to negate my own question is how would she have gotten to the place she gets to by the end of the novel? If not for Rochester's betrayal, if not for leaving him, if not for all the, the exact experience she went through the way she went through it. Absolutely. I mean, that's like, the whole hero's journey, right? The point of our story is this growth and coming to this moment. Um, but 100%. Yeah. As we've been talking about this, there's a song, um, that I've been listening to recently that I recommend everyone go look up because it is very relevant to this. It's Mm -hmm. called mother nature by the artist Ray. And that's spelled R A Y E in all caps. Um, she produced that single with Hans Zimmer, um, and it's just gorgeous and it's talking about how powerful and beautiful mother nature is. So go listen to that. Cool. Um, but also, uh, go touch some grass, go walk yeah, go touch some grass, guys. You've got, if you live in Minnesota like us, you've got about 10 more minutes before the grass gets covered in snow. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but as we learned, snow and frost and nature can be beautiful if your attitude about it is. Good. Yes. <laughs> Were you trying to set me up to say something poetic? Nope. <laughs> okay, great. If your attitude is I just good. ran I just ran I just ran out of things to say. So Hey, it's been an hour and a half, so I think we've earned it. Um This has been one of my favorite discussions. I love talking about these things in depth with you, Lillian. It's so fun to better understand text that we know and love um on an even deeper level. Uh yeah. so I hope you guys 
picked up some new tidbits. Um, if there's something that we've missed, which probably there is, because this book could be discussed for eons, um, let us know. Send us your other nature insights, metaphors, um, things like that. Uh, airbuds at gmail.com. And you can reach out to us in uh, easy form on all social media platforms at earbuds. And uh, this is our last themed episode. Um, so we have one, two, sorry, I'm going to actually count it. Give me just a second. We have four episodes left um, next week. So to, one little update on a previous thing that we said. Um, after the after last week's episode, we said that it was our last uh, adaptation we were going to watch. We are liars. <laughs> um, more specifically, like Rochester. Since, <laughs> since we announced that, we learned that there are four episodes of the 1963 BBC TV show that we are now able to access. So we are going to watch those for an episode and talk about that along with some other things. Um, but next week, we are going to be talking about a book called Jane and Edward that came out this year. Um, it was recommended to us by lots of listeners, and we were luckily, lucky enough to interview Melody Edwards, um, who is the author of that book. And it was one of my favorite discussions we've had on the podcast. It was so much fun to talk to her. Um, it was such a fun book to read. Per always, the first half will be spoiler-free. The second half will be spoiler-full. So if you don't have time <laughs> to read the whole book in the next week, you can uh, listen to our beginning of that and decide if you want to read it or not. And spoiler alert, you're going to want to read it. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Already definitely strongly recommend. Um, but guys, thanks again so much for joining us on this long journey. Um, but it's been wonderful. You all are creatures of nature. So um, <laughs> don't change and uh, <laughs> go find yourself in whatever natural setting is available to you. Yeah, I was going to ask about you do it. <laughs> No, you do it. You do it. I don't want to do it. Ask about what? <laughs> leaving reviews? I was, no, I was going to... Uh, leaving reviews. Yeah, leave reviews. I was going to ask about the <laughs> closing line. We have to do it or it's not an end of an Air Buds episode. I will. I thought maybe you were going to have a closing remark. So here it comes, ready, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> happy, <laughs> happy Jane Air reading and watching. Bye. Get out of here. <laughs>